Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. And uh, Cody, first of all, happy birthday. How you doing? No, thank you. Yeah, um, the precipice of 30, Ben, were... T minus, what is it now, 24 hours before that happens. It feels weird. I don't know. I don't want to get caught up in the whole, like, oh, I'm 30. What does that mean? But, like, it's there. It's lingering. I'm thinking about it. But I, f- I feel pretty good about it. I'm pretty I'm good. Are you big into the numerology? The, like, the fact that it's a new. It's just, a, it's one, nor- it's, you know, every year is a new year. But the 30 is really, yeah, it's really I, yeah, in I mean, your yeah. head. I have NBA brain about it, Ben. It's like the triple-double. It's like hitting 25 points or 30 points. It's special. Yeah, But 30 in the NBA is like the new 26. So, you know, there's there's a curve. So maybe that's a good... If you think about it from an NBA perspective, you're basically turning 26. You know, not to get too off topic, but I do think that's the case with age. Like, I ran into... I I overheard a conversation in a a Target yesterday, and there's this woman. I heard her say, like, oh, I'm 85. And I had to, like, do a triple-take, and I'm like... I thought you were like fifth. Where are we right now? Where are we? We we should probably talk about basketball right now instead of okay, numerology right. and and age. Okay. Um. Well, age is relevant to the topic we're going to get into today. I think what we're going to talk about might affect old players a little bit. There are some cases, but it it is definitely inspired by what happens with young players. Uh, it's something that we've talked about in previous episodes talked around we've talked about it internally and um, goodness knows over the years I've pointed out players who who fall into this sort of thing we're going to talk about but the idea behind today's show the idea behind today's show Cody is that scoring is a thing that is a very slippery slope in basketball in the NBA if you score and scoring is your primary mode of applying value and contributing value on the court, meaning you're probably not that good defensively. That's not your calling card. You may even be really problematic defensively. And you're probably not like making highlight reels for your playmaking or your passing. You're not someone who's getting the ball, orchestrating a ton of offense and making incredible plays left and right to set up your teammate. No, you are a scorer. You might get buckets. You've got some nice points per game. That's your calling card. That might even be your identity. That's why you're in the league. And the fascinating thing about this is if you are a great scorer in the NBA, you're probably an all-star. You might be in the NBA Hall of Fame. If you're a good scorer, if you're a good scorer, you're usually you're usually living with a nice career because you're a good scorer. But if that's your only skill, as you get weaker in that skill, you almost like very quickly go from really good player to like pretty good player to whoa this guy's got to come off the bench and maybe he's playing 25 minutes a game to can this guy be in the rotation for a playoff team and this is this very steep slope of of this type of player so we're going to get into it we're going to talk about examples we're going to talk about maybe if we get to it how it manifests on the back end of the career um but you know this to me is just a fascinating idea where Guys come in as rookies, they average 18 points a game, they make the all-rookie team, someone gets super excited about them, and then they're out of the league in five years. Is it all scoring? Like, is this scoring inclusive, or is it a specific kind of scoring? Because I'm imagining somebody who actually has a lot of value just because of their scoring, because they're able to space the court, or they're able to move. Are you? Do you think this is a clearly, like, 
a player that scores on ball a lot, or does this also include players that have a, a robust off ball scoring game? That's a really good question. I mean, we have we have our examples that we can look through. My guess is it's primarily geared toward on ball scorers, right? Because if you if you move and are very active off ball and you're a great shooter, you usually add that extra dimension that we love to talk about and celebrate on this show. And so you're you're adding a little playmaking, you're adding a little value with spacing. So we might see some examples of guys that that are pretty good shooters in that regard, but I think it's probably more on ball and I think it's probably players who in in a, in a way, Cody at the NBA level think they're better shooters than they are, if you will. You know, like the difference in the NBA now between being a 33% three-point shooter and a 38% three-point shooter is probably many tens of millions of dollars a year in your bank account, if, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, and even like... I think the one thing we have to talk about is the fact that it's not just like a single season of this. Like we talked so much about players going through a slump last year. Steph Curry went through a slump or whatever else, but no one like actually changed the way that they defended Steph Curry. They still treated him the same way. Same with guys like Clay Thompson, who like we talked about last time came out and still dropped 50 points. We're talking about somebody that's actually across like a long time span, 33% shooter, as opposed to just like, here's a random blip of a season where they're shooting 33% from three. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to call out too many players that are currently playing uh, for a number of reasons. We'll we'll talk about some historical examples to really kind of set in stone exactly what we're talking about because I think this is a critical idea that gets lost in the conversation sometimes. Where there is a player on one team, and maybe this is the biggest inspiration for this entire episode. There's a player on one team. Usually that team is not very good. They're almost never a playoff team. They might even be like a 15 or 20 win team. And he's roughly the leading scorer on that team. 15, 18, maybe 20 points a game. And so what you get is you get a fan base and sometimes you get certain even executives saying like, oh, this guy, he's got some scoring juice. He's a good offensive player. Uh, yes, he's our number one kind of option on a not good team, but I mean, he's obviously better than a role player, right? And and that's where over the years I've really, really radically shifted my position on this. And it's come around to the point where I think it's actually really hard to be a contributing, strong, high-level role player on deep playoff teams Uh and those guys are really valuable, whereas the scorers who just aren't good enough as scorers and are one-dimensional, when you put them on those playoff teams, sometimes they, they don't even play anymore. They like go to the edge of the rotation or they go completely out of the rotation. So in many ways, that's the inspiration for today's show. And I said I didn't want to call anyone out that's playing, and we won't. But just in transparency, Devontae Graham for the for the Pelicans is what led me to this thought because we've just done a ton of Pelican stuff on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, um, you know, deep diving the team, really interesting team. And here's this guy on the edge of the rotation, Devontae Graham, who just a couple years ago in Charlotte became yet another one of these players who's like, oh, he's taken off. He can take 10 pull-up threes a game. He's a 38% shooter. That has a certain amount of value that must be better than the Grant Williams of the world, right? It must be better than the Danny Greens of the world because those guys could never, ever be a number one option. And I think you could go all the way to the extreme end of the scale on that sort of role player spectrum to Draymond Green where people cannot escape the idea that like just because Draymond Green 
could never under any circumstance be like more than a 15 point per game scorer ever, right? Like that's just not his thing, that he can't be better than a guy who's a big scorer. I think you have a lot to say on this. Well, I want to start with one thing. I want to try and, and, and figure something out here. So I think this is a big scouting question here because we have you bring up Devontae Graham, right? And we actually got the counterfactual. We're able to actually see it applied in the real world. We saw him with the Hornets, now we're seeing him with the Pelicans. But there's plenty of examples of some of these players that sort of don't get that chance. They never have the opportunity to go somewhere else and prove what their skills may or may not be. So when you have a player that is scoring moderately well, it pops a little bit, and they're on a bad team, but they're, they haven't yet had a chance to try playing on a higher level team, what are some things that you look for or think about when you're watching these players to determine uh, if they actually have some skills that would work? I guess if they're able to scale to a to a better team. Yeah, that's that's such a good question because it's not always easy to see. Um, one, for obvious reasons. You just have to look pretty closely usually. And two, it is reasonable to believe that some of these players are in situations where the team isn't very good. If you're young, they're trying to develop you. And you're coming from a situation in high school or college where you're the star and the scoring star yourself. And so in that situation, you're continuing to expand the same skill set. You're like, I'm taking my on-ball, awesome, get-buckets, scoring game that you guys all saw with my fadeaway jumpers and my baseline dunks, and I'm, I'm... NBA proofing it. I'm, I'm bringing it up to that level. And therefore, there isn't focus on the other stuff. The playmaking is something that comes along that you're looking for. But defense, defense often involves effort. It often involves buy-in. It often involves attention from a player. And so, yes, Cody, you know, you know me. I love to look at a young guy and go, oh, the the indicators are there that he's going to buy in on defense. The indica- Like Cade Cunningham, when you watch him, Whatever happens with his career, his blueprint as a defender is right there. He's long, he's active, he's already making some plays. So you look at that and you're like, okay, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that this is someone who's not going to disappear from the league because he can't defend or he's a useless body on one half of the court. But there are other guys, it's like, you're watching tape and they don't look very good and you have to go, well, it's possible if we change the situation that they would focus more on defense. So I think it's a great question because you want to look for those moments. You want to look beyond just their scoring to see, hey, is this, and it's not, and we're simplifying, right, by saying just defense and playmaking. Because I think the other component of value on the court is all the little connective tissue stuff that doesn't have a name, that doesn't have stats. It's just like, when to change the angle of a screen and how to communicate on defense and understanding a read in a moment half second early so you rotate and bump your teammate and there isn't a breakdown but no one ever notices it's because of getting a loose ball making a play and throwing it off someone's leg and keeping you know keeping possession out of bounds all those activity effort motor all those things are hard to measure and they're hard to discuss but that oftentimes is the difference between like yeah, this guy is in the rotation, and the question is, how good is he? Is he an all-star? Is he a sub-all-star? Versus, yeah, when we put this player out there, he doesn't do any of that stuff. He doesn't really give us any value beyond just his scoring. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yeah, there seems to be multiple levels of this. So, like, you need to have an awareness of the kinds of things that role players do on high-level teams that work. Like, what are the things that, like, the Andre Guadalas with Golden State, what are the things that those guys are doing, the things, like, Grant Williams is doing with the Celtics, what are they doing to be able to fit in when there's N number of players above him that's taking more shots, doing more offensive things? And you kind of have to, like, you have to play in the playground of the mind, Ben, right? You have to take these players and imagine. You have to play some hypotheticals inside yourself to be like, all right, I'm seeing some of these skills, and I know for a fact that if you were to focus on these, it can translate them. And I think it gets really tricky because there's also like the psychological aspect of it. You can never look at a player and be like, oh, he's going to be totally okay doing that on another team, right? You can't do that. And that's sometimes the thing that holds people back is you're like, we know that if you did this, you would be so much better but you just don't, you know, it's that kind of thing. So I think like that's all you can do is look for those moments, uh, have some kind of like in your mind, what are the things you want a good role player to do? And then can these players actually do them? Do they show some kind of a propensity of doing those already in the situation they're in? Yeah, I, I wrote uh, one of the chapters, I think, in Thinking Basketball, the book talks about how every team has a leading score. And it's this is this is a similar idea that we're talking about today that's going to extend that. So my guess is we could probably find in the hundreds, like over a hundred examples historically in the NBA that that fit this description. But just to make things pop, I wanted to focus on recent. Like let's let's talk about like roughly the last fifteen years. Um, just players that we've been able to get the counterfactual. We've been able to see them on one team as they're really young be one of the leading scorers, create that excitement, sometimes get a lot of praise, make all rookie teams, be be at the top. You know, Cody, when you're doing your top 25, under 25 podcast, be at the, the heart of the argument between like, no, Grant Williams is better than this scorer on this 19-win team who, here's the key. When I look at him, he seems very weak defensively. He's not a great playmaker. He doesn't have feel for all the little stuff. And therefore, his scoring better be awesome to impart value on a high-level team where they need an awesome one-dimensional score. And I love what you led with. If you move without the ball, if you're a great shooter, you're adding extra dimensionality to the scoring. So I don't know how many of those guys we're going to encounter on the list today because my guess is it's usually a little bit more one-dimensional. And if you do move and try to shoot off ball, you're probably just not a good enough shooter. Like your idea, you think you're Addie House, but but you're really not. You're like a 30% three-point shooter. You're not like a 40% three-point shooter. So you being in Milwaukee, it being your birthday, um, <laughs> me me, be, me being drunk on podcasting, I should have started. I, I probably just should have started the show with this. We've been abstractly bouncing things around for like 15 minutes. Brandon Jennings is like the the all-time guy in my head of just, and, and he's not even the best example because he was actually like a decent, you know, he could play in the NBA. But if you don't, if you, if you didn't live through it, he had a 55 point game in like one of his first few, first few weeks as a rookie. And there were a lot of people who were convinced because of that game, because of how quick he was, because of his scoring numbers in Milwaukee, that he was like a legitimate star, just 
carve it in the stone. We're good to go. Don't don't give Cody. Were you one of these people? Yeah, I I specifically remember using the phrase. This guy is the left-handed Allen Iverson. Okay, all right. Okay, we're tell me more because this yes this we need this first-hand uh, historical accounting so people understand how these things transpire in the past before you know in the dark ages before Twitter and things like that. So first of all, that fifty-four. 54- point game is one of the more special moments like I remember like I didn't watch the game I don't think I had league pass at the time but I remember watching like NBA TV afterwards and NBA game time and they were splashing I think he had like a behind the back move where he finishes and I'm like this is it this is we've done it we made it as a Bucks fandom uh that didn't pan out he he said that they were going to take out the heat it was like Bucks and six it was the birth of Bucks and six baby uh and then of course LeBron and Dwayne Wade absolutely just just curb curb stomped the Bucks. No, no, no. The no, the first year, the first year they played the Hawks, and I remember this because I was hand tracking every single playoff game in 2010 and 2011. I hand tracked every single playoff game. It was insanely tedious, and the hardest series that year was the NBA TV special between the Hawks and the Bucks. This like grueling, just mutation of a basketball series that, of course, had to go seven games. And uh, this was coming off the year where Jennings, he had 50, it was his seventh game. I'm looking it up right now. His seventh game, he had 55 points against the Warriors, Mm -hmm. 21 of 34 from the floor, seven of eight from downtown, Cody. Seven of eight from downtown. And and I think the craziest like single stat we could could put on that for um, Jennings is, do you know what his second highest scoring game of his entire career was of his entire career yeah oh no i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah. take a guess and say like 28 it was it's pretty good guess he he hit 37 the next year 37 okay yeah good, good he him. hit 37 the next year and he had a couple more uh 30 point games especially in milwaukee but but i want to hear more about the left-handed Allen iverson thing and before before you tell us about that Jennings, as I said, he's actually not even the best example. He's just an example that sits higher up on the kind of the steepness of this concept. The idea that like, as you get worse as a scorer, as you bleed more value in the other areas, you move way, you go, you go from like the 60th best player to the 260th best player. It's a very, very steep dimension to have this sort of singular value that you impart on the game. So Jennings in Milwaukee, as Cody's about to tell you more about, they were just um, goo-goo gaga after this. So he was able to be the starting point guard for his four years in Milwaukee, always averaged about you know, 16 to 19 points a game, five to six assists a game. He could handle the ball. He was super, super quick. But to me, not a great passer. I mentioned the seven of eight three-point shooting. He was a career 34.5% three-point shooter. Um, so he was a decent shooter, but basically what happens to Jennings is by the time he gets to his age 24 season, the Bucks are like, we're, we're done with you. Um, tur- turns out we're not very good and you keep playing a lot of minutes. So maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should try something else. And he ends up going to Detroit and, uh, plays like what a couple, couple more seasons in Detroit. And then after 2015, after like his fifth or sixth year, he literally has trouble getting minutes in the NBA and he only starts a handful of games for the rest of his entire career, bounces to Orlando, bounces to New York, bounces to Washington, bounces back to Milwaukee 
by the time he's 28 where he's averaging 14 points a game and then he goes and plays overseas 14 minutes a game sorry 14 yes four did i say points yeah, he, he's definitely yes. not averaging 14 points no, a game. No, he's down to 14 minutes a game. He can barely get, get in a rotation. Yeah, so I was thinking about this yesterday because I never actually sat down and like thought through the whole Allen Iverson thing because I think Allen Iverson is a really interesting North Star in this whole conversation. And I was trying to think of like the gradations of this kind of scoring, right? I'm like, all right, so clearly there's a gap. There's Allen Iverson, who's like very clearly, we talked about him a good amount in our conference finals series in the summer. And, you know, we came to the conclusion that Allen Iverson is a very good offensive, like, <laughs> believe it or not, everyone, <laughs> Allen Iverson was good. Like, Yeah, like he, like he has weaknesses, as we discussed. It was a really fun episode to do. He's not the greatest offensive player ever. And there are people that fall prey to saying like oh he scored 35 points a game he's only 5'11 so it's more impressive but like though all those things considered he's still a very good offensive player and on this scale he kind of represents maybe like the high end of performance and as you start to strip everything else away you go from a top 10 player to a top 50 player to a top 250 player to like welcome to russia <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way to describe that. I like that because if you're if you're five eleven to say like six one, not a great knockdown shooter, a really big on ball type of scorer, Allen Iverson is like the peak of what you can be. So I was trying to think of the lineage. There's like Allen Iverson, then somewhere in between the two is like Monte Ellis, and then you have like Brandon Jennings. So it's like it, it it provides this nice little gradation from the top to bottom. And I was I was trying to compare them to see like statistically what are some of the things I'm looking at. So I think the main thing that really is helpful looking at this conversation is how do these players perform in the playoffs? Are they actually getting minutes? Are they actually contributing on key teams uh, to some kind of degree? And so I pulled some of their three-year peaks in the playoffs, right? And Allen Iverson, between like 2001 to 2003, plays nearly 1,800 minutes in the playoffs. Like this guy, obviously they made the finals run in 2001, uh, but he's he's playing a good amount. He's playing a lot of minutes as he did. He averaged, what, like 40? I swear to God, he averaged like 46 minutes a game during that time. And he's averaging like 31 points per 75, negative two true shooting percentage. And so when you look down at the rest of the scoring, Monte Ellis is more like 22 points per 75 on negative one and a half relative true shooting percentage. Brandon Jennings didn't play in three playoff series. He wasn't a key contributor in three playoff series. So all of a sudden right there, you're like, all right, we actually don't have enough data to look at this. So then if you like, if you extrapolate a little bit, you look at Brandon Jennings as key, his maybe best, uh, uh, playoff series, he averages kind of around what Monte Ellis did for about three seasons, 23-ish points per 75 on negative three and a half true shooting percentage. So number one, volume matters. Like Allen Iverson is scoring nearly 10 points per 75 more than them on roughly the same efficiency. But the other thing, Ben, that really stands out is their box creation, their ability to set up their teammates, right? Allen Iverson is around 11 for a box creation. He's creating about 11 shots per 100 possessions for his teammates. Monte Ellis in his three-year peak, just a shade under six. Brandon Jennings, around six. Passer rating, another stat in the thinkingbasketball.net database. Allen Iverson's above seven. He's like a 7.3, which is a very good passer. So the passes he's making to his teammates are good. He's setting up good, clean looks for his teammates. Monte Ellis, about five and a half. Jennings, again, around six. So when you're thinking offensively, number one, Allen Iverson just scores so much more than these other guys, but he's also creating so many more shots for his teammates and doing it better than them, right? So I think it can be, this is where assists can be a little bit more... Uh, uh, 
what can I say, beguiling, where you look at the assist numbers, you're like, this guy's a good passer, but you start looking at the granularity of the passes, and you're like, actually, are you really providing that much more as a creator than some of these other guys? So those are some of the, the conclusions I came from these three guys. And this is where the opportunity cost in basketball is such a big deal, because the more primacy these guys have, the more volume they have, the more they have the ball, the more they're going to be doing things like shooting and passing. And that prevents other players from doing stuff. It prevents other players from having opportunities. So if you're going to be Iverson, you better be good enough in those skills. And I actually think Iverson's playmaking was probably better than his scoring. Uh, But of course, he's a good enough scorer especially in the context that we talked about over the summer on those teams and during that era, he's a good enough scorer to apply pressure to create healthy playmaking. As you scale down the gradations, as you mentioned here, and you go to Monte Ellis, like Monte Ellis, maybe who's like pretty good at very quick, had the same kind of like rim pressure, um, but he's not Russell Westbrook. Brandon Jennings maybe goes down another notch from that. And then, heck, Cody, we can even get to guys because I do want to list some old players that are out of the league um, and not, not, of course, to rag on them, but because I don't think people understand how common this is. Like, I think what happens is these players come along and they disappear and it just is scale. Like, it's like vapor. It just disappears from everyone's consciousness. And the new shiny object comes in and, you know, you're doing your top 25 under 25 list. And you're like, you're, there is no way that Danny Green, who can't score 13 points a game, is better than this sexy object on the... Um, I was going to say Houston Rockets, but then people will think I'm talking about Jalen Green. I just meant the Rockets in general. That was the thought that popped into my head, not not Jalen Green. Um, but you, that's the idea, right? So you can actually go below Jennings, and and the primacy and the volume is a huge deal. And another guy um, that comes to mind, man, there's so many Milwaukee Bucks on this list. Michael Carter Williams. You remember? You remember Michael Carter Williams, Cody? <laughs> Mr. Almost Quadruple Double in his first game in the NBA against LeBron James. And it was, it was the Miami Heat at that point, right? Uh, I believe I believe Miami. I believe the Heat are in Miami. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know if it was Cavs. LeBron's been, LeBron's traveled so far and wide, Ben, far and wide. I didn't know at what point in his journey the blip of Michael, Michael Carter-Williams occurred. Uh, I actually think that was his first season back in Cleveland. No, no, no. It was his last season in Miami. Okay. His last season in Miami. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, I think Michael Carter Williams is really interesting because again, he comes in, I think he has nine steals in the first game. The Bucks pull out the win. And so you're like, this is when the Bucks were like really leaning into the whole like, let's just get a bunch of guys that are long. You know, it's kind of like what the Orlando Magic is doing, except like the Magic drafted really good players that have, have really high potential. But you look at Carter Williams and the scoring was never super efficient, but like you pretended he could be a good defender, right? Those steal numbers from that first game, and you're like, maybe this guy could do it. Just, just, just to be clear for everyone, his his rookie game was in Philadelphia. It, it was in Philadelphia. He had, not, he had 22 points, 12 assists, nine steals, seven rebounds, and then he went to Milwaukee the next year. Wow. See, this is crazy that this is happening right now. Like, I have, listen, listen, everyone. I got, you've, you've combined those, right? I've got, like, a fancy new light that, like, illuminates me. So, like, you all are catching me in 4K, just straight up making up things in Milwaukee Bucks. Like, I have reclaimed this Philadelphia moment as a moment in my personal Bucks history. So, you, you can see it clearly right now, the, the, the 
lying that has just occurred. I apologize. No, it's not. It's not lying. You've done a very common thing. Memory is very, um, very fallible. And what you've done, I think, is jammed two events together and you've taken the rookie game in Philadelphia and then you've taken that excitement of getting Michael Carter Williams, you know, the, 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 oh, now he's a buck. Like, well, why is, why is Philadelphia shipping him so quickly if he's so good? They weren't, they weren't a good team in 2014. Philadelphia won 19 games. They, they had a minus 11 point differential. Um, not, not, not good. An, an historically bad team. But he wins rookie of the year. He averages 17 points a game. And in this case, he's kind of doing more, as you said, right? 17 points, six assists, six rebounds. He goes to the Bucs. It's not quite as good. The Bucs also are. They're like a 41-ish fringe playoff team. And then after that, he basically caps out at 18 or 19 minutes a game, and he's out of the NBA by the age of 29. This is this is this is what we're talking about. This sort of the difference between like, oh, this young player with this skill that's driven by having the ball and and potentially scoring and creating a lot off his scoring. If you don't do anything else and your scoring isn't above that threshold, isn't high enough on that slippery slope, you're basically you you so quickly can go out of the rotation to out of the league. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole memory thing, like we just said, really illustrates this point really well, right? Because you remember the tough shots, because usually it's a lot of tough shot makers that get into this conversation. And you see the tough shots, and that's what you remember. You're like, oh, how do you remember so-and-so? It's like, oh, Michael Carter-Williams, like he blew by someone. He's a 6'5 point guard, right? He grabbed a steal, and he was able to throw it down in traffic. Or, oh, so-and-so dipped into their bag. They hit a step step back mid over someone. Like, if they're able to develop that, they're going to be incredible. And that's what your mind goes to. It doesn't go to all the other moments that there's so much to watch on a basketball court, right? There's 10 guys doing 10 things all the time, all living in their own little their time warps, right? And so you you only only the big splashy things stand out into your mind. And I think that's the trap that people fall into so easily with these kinds of players. My favorite examples of these kinds of players are when we get to see them jump from a high quality playoff team to a bad team or vice versa. So someone like Jordan Crawford. Remember Jordan Crawford who went you remember he went viral for the dunk on LeBron. Yes. Right? The the yeah. the uh what was it? Wasn't the video like confiscated? Like, yes, yes. <laughs> that an incredible story. Anyone that doesn't know that story should look the the secret Jordan Crawford tapes. Yep. And and 
you know, incredibly, Jordan Crawford has this amazing shot in one of the great NCAA tournament games ever between Xavier and and Kansas State. And now in my mind, I've made Gus Johnson the broadcaster of that game because it was so amazing. But after what happened with Michael Carter Williams, I'm not I'm not sure Gus Johnson was the broadcaster in that game. It was an amazing game. Xavier, uh, Kansas State, maybe like Sweet 16. Crawford was a scoring machine. He hit like a 35 foot three to uh, tie the game, I think, in one of the overtimes or something. And so he's a scorer and he comes into Washington and he averages 16 points per game as a rookie on a not very good team. 27 minutes a night in 2012. He's, you know, 15, 16 point per game scorer. And then he gets to go to the Celtics in 2013, who are a playoff team. And what immediately happens is at age 24, he can barely play in the playoff rotation. That's what the immediately overnight. Now you're supposed to get better between age 23 and 24. So if we grant him as getting better, that's the difference. You're on a bad team. You're a 16 point per game scorer. Your, your scoring looks really exciting. You can barely crack the rotation on a good team. 2014, he goes to Golden State, 10 minutes a game. And then uh, I believe he went off to China after that. Another, another overseas, that's the end of his career kind of, kind of situation. It's so tough. I wish, I wish Ben that I could go back and actually think about what I thought about these guys. I wish I could see notes that I didn't take on some of these guys as it was happening in the moment. Because I don't want to sit here and be like, ah, he couldn't crack the rotation in Boston, right? Clearly, he had some things that were issues. But I, I can't tell you that. I remember being on the Jordan Crawford train. Like it's it's easy, especially when you're like really not intensely watching. Like I said, it's easy to be beguiled by by some of those scoring numbers. Yeah, and and let's let's jump to the flip side. I mentioned. This same concept applies to the end of your career. Uh, a couple years earlier in Boston, Stefan Marbury comes from the Knicks, and he had had all these like all these weird things that were happening with the Knicks that I don't want to get into. And Knicks fans, I don't know if any Knicks fans listen to this show, but they they don't want to they don't want to rehash this probably. So basically, there was like a feud with Isaiah and Marbury and and Mar- I don't remember Marbury like wasn't showing up to practice because of the feud or he thought he was going to be benched or he was benched and his minutes went down. Anyway, this is coming off the heels of uh, a multi-time all-star career, um, a very marketable player, huge numbers, had some big moments in New York in the mid-2000s. His scoring is declining. This idea of him having the ball a lot, being ball dominant, being the centerpiece of an offense, these skills are slipping. So is he a a positive defender? No. Does he do the little things well? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not really. Um, So he goes to the Celtics. And maybe some people, this is where Cody, like you, I wish I had notes of my friends who text me, you know, like, oh my God, we got Marbury, things like that. This is, he goes to a playoff team, and in 2009, he basically plays a few spot minutes in the postseason, and that's it. Then he, then he goes to China and, and resurrects his career in China. And that's the difference at the end of a career between, like, I'm on a 23-win Knicks team, and I want to be the starter, and I want to average 20 and 8, and I want to have the ball all the time, and going to a playoff team and getting spot minutes in, at the edge of the rotation. You know, that does seem to be like a 
I think we saw Westbrook and pe- people, yep. you know, I, I definitely thought this at the beginning of the season. It looked like Westbrook was definitely at the end. And obviously Westbrook's not MVP Westbrook anymore, but he seems to have found a role and he still has the passing chops and enough explosiveness to make value out of what he does as a playmaker, right? It doesn't look like Westbrook's going to be played out of the league quite yet this year. And we talked about Allen Iverson earlier in the show. He's another guy that what, by 31? Did he make it to 32 as an NBA player when he bounced around to the Grizzlies and the Pistons again and and whomever else he played with? But it does seem to be these these smaller score first, but can also get creation because they're so bursty types of point guards that kind of see this quick drop off at the end. Because like you said, there's such a that that edge is so sheer at the end that once you cross it, there's no coming back. It's 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 so steep, and I think Iver the end of Iverson's career is one of the least discussed things ever relative to how interesting and important it is to a concept like this because he was still relatively young and he didn't just completely fall apart. What happened is he may have lost half a step or something, right? And that's all it took to take that style of play, reduce the value of the scoring, reducing the value of the scoring reduces the value of the playmaking. And I believe... At the very end of his career, that was the famous, like, what kind of MVP comes off the bench speech. Mm -hmm. He had a speech about, like, what kind of, you know, all NBA player comes off the bench, what kind of MVP player comes off the bench, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, it's rhetorical, but, of course, the answer is, like, when when you get older, you come off the bench because you end up doing different things because you can't dominate a game anymore in the same way with the same skills. And so Westbrook, I think, very much had that. It was one of the reasons why... I don't remember the year, Cody, maybe 2021, where there were people voting for Westbrook for all NBA teams because those votes are are publicized. And I want to say some people gave him like second team all NBA votes in 2021. Does that does that sound right? Do you remember this? I mean, to my soul, it doesn't sound right, Ben. <laughs> did, did it so, actually happen? Pro- probably. Yes. He And the reason is because he averaged 22 points, 12 assists and 12 rebounds. And I believe that year I discussed him in the sub all-stars podcast where I talked about how he was not on the sub all-stars to me. And it's precisely because of this thing, the difference between like 2018 or 2019 Westbrook and OKC and a couple years later where the scoring isn't quite as good. And therefore the playmaking isn't quite as good means yes, you're a guy who is, you know, going to be able to do things that no role player could ever do. But precisely because you have so much responsibility, when the value in those areas degrades and you don't add value in other areas, you very quickly go from like the 15th best player in the league to the 75th best player in the league. And I think Westbrook's done a good job in Los Angeles coming off the bench and staying in the rotation precisely because he's such a good playmaker. Because he's he's his speed uh, and burst, especially against second units and and transition play, still allows him to have some of that playmaking value. So he he's another really interesting case to me historically, and still still hanging on, I think, because of it at thirty four. There's a there's a real razor's edge, Ben, that yeah. exists for players of different sizes. Because I'm thinking of guys like, let's say Tim Duncan, all time great Tim Duncan, right? Early on in the two thousands, we're talking one of the greatest isolation post scores ever tremendous defensive play what what do you want to say what do you want to say what year is it what year is it 2023 and we're still talking about tim duncan when did he retire 2016 he's still playing in my heart ben i think he's still probably a top 100 player honestly honestly he probably is suited up yeah so he reinvents himself 
right? Right before the, the beautiful game Spurs happen. He kind of reinvents himself. He loses some weight. He starts passing a little bit more. He doesn't get the post touches that he does. And he's still able to provide enough value through his defense because of his size, because of, I think, honestly, his sheer size and his intellect on the court helps a lot there. But when you're a small guard whose game is predicated on athleticism, you don't necessarily have those other skills that you can transition to. And it's not just age that affects it, Ben, because there's a couple guys that I was going to bring up today about this, but I I think injuries more or less derailed where they could have gone. And I think two of those players right around the same time, both smaller guards that seem to have maybe potential were Aaron Brooks and Johnny Flynn. And I know, you know, Johnny Flynn gets clowned because what was he picked before Steph Curry by the Timberwolves? I think that was the famous pick. Uh, he had extreme, incredible burst, but then he te- tears his his labrum, I believe, hip labrum. I don't know that much about biomechanics, but that's not a you good don't, thing. You don't want to tear your hip labrum. No. That's the short of it, yeah. If you're an explosive athlete, that's like the last area of your body you want to injure. And after that, he's never the same. Aaron Brooks has a great season. He has a couple of nice little playoff runs, right? I think it's with the Rockets. He's averaging about 20 points per game. He's able to space the floor. He breaks his ankle, I think, in, in 2010. And after that, really never reclaims that. And when you are six foot five eleven six one and then the main avenue for your for your value is taken away you're not tim duncan you can't fall back on the fact that you can basically touch the rim standing flat-footed right (laughs) like you there's no other value that you can really bring to the game that's not that athleticism so i think that's the that's the scary part of some of these kinds of guards that get brought up in this conversation let's talk about a bigger player who uh, fits this category for me. And and you're making a great point. It's usually guards. It's usually smaller guys on the outside who can bring the ball up the court and kind of dominate the ball and use up more oxygen in the room. And therefore, they sit on this razor's edge. But the big guy I'm thinking of is Jaleel Okafor. Mm-hmm. You remember him? Oh. Remember, remember the excitement around Jaleel? I, uh, I saw Jaleel Okafor live when he played for Duke back in the day. I, I remember the excitement. Yeah, and he was was he the first pick or the he was the thir- third pick? He was taken third by the 76ers in, in the 2015 draft. I know Cody's looking around. Is that I'm the looking Embiid around. draft? Did they take Embiid and Okafor? No, that can't be a thing. No, no, no. That was Carl uh, Anthony Towns. He was first. D'Angelo Russell mm. was second to the Lakers, and Philadelphia took Okafor, and he averages 18 points a game as a rookie. He's all rookie, 18 and 7. And then Cody, he never, forget the playoffs. He never plays on a playoff team. (laughs) He never gets more than 22 minutes a game for the rest of his NBA career. And that happens in his second season in Philadelphia. Once he leaves Philadelphia, it's just a struggle for the next couple of years to crack a rotation. And of course, he's he's out of the league uh, by 25. And I think it's the same kind of thing. In his case... Being a big man, we, I, there's a number of big men during this period we could look at where it's like the game passes you by if you don't have certain defensive skills. It's harder to stay on the floor as a big man. And then in today's game, you know, you lack the playmaking. And it's like now we're back in our original recipe that started this whole show. You're a one dimensional scorer. How good is your scoring? Your scoring isn't good enough. What, why are we giving you minutes on a good team? So, <laughs> you brought up the Carter Williams Sixers before, talking about the 19-win Sixers. We've, yeah, we've talked about the Sixers <laughs> a little bit, and we talked about the Bucks a little There seems to be a theme. Who are you thinking of now? No, so Okafor in that 2015-2016 Sixers. Ben, that's yeah. the 10-win 10, 10 
76ers, oh, where oh he was no. averaging 30 minutes a game. But let's play a little game here. Let's play a game for a second. Can you tell me? Can you no, tell me I any can't. of the no. top five players in total minutes played of the 2015-2016 76ers? Um, I, I, this is one that I actually don't think I can name one other player. <laughs> Okafor's on not one can, of them. Can I get a hint? Like this, this feels impossible. Two of them still. <laughs> Two of them are still in the NBA. One player's actually a, a contributor in the NBA, and one of them was actually a really high-level role-playing contributor in the NBA. I, I, I have no idea. You're just going to have to tell us. So we have top five minutes for that 76ers team. Hollis Thompson. Jeremy Grant still in the league. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Hollis Thompson? Wait a second. You've caught, you caught me off guard. Okay. Hollis Thompson oh, played the most oh, minutes. Oh, Jeremy, Jeremy Grant. Yep. Jeremy Grant, Isaiah Cannon, Nerlens Noel, and Robert Covington. Whoa, that's that's wild. Yeah. It's an interesting like garden of a couple of players that contributed that can that contributed some good stuff in the NBA. Yeah. And Nick's Nick Stauskas was on that team too. So it's very exciting. And Covington was the leading scorer of that whole group with uh, twelve point eight points per game. Of that group. Of that, was he, of that group. He yes. wasn't the leading scorer on the team though, right? No, no, but of the top five minutes guys on the team, twelve point eight led all of them. Okay. Okay. Whew. I don't even know how to recover. That was a special time, Ben. That was After a, that. That was a special that's, time. Uh... It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So, so yeah, I I would say, um, you know, looking at the names that I went through that really like fit this description, you get guys like Rondé Hollis Jefferson, who he's playing on a 28 win Nets team in 2018. He's averaging four, 14 points per game. He's a young player. He's he's in the you know he's starting games, and then the team gets better the very next year. He doesn't have to go to a different team. They just get better the very next year. And all of a sudden, you go down to 21 minutes a game. And then the same year, you're at the edge of the playoff rotation at like 15 or 16 minutes a game. And that portends, that is the predictor of him not being in the league. Um, and I don't remember how long he stayed around, but he essentially you know, was out of the league shortly after that. So you get a lot of guys like that. Um, just And again, we just limited this to like the last... 15 years i think it's consistently something that's been part of the game since i can remember it i didn't i didn't put his name down but you just reminded me with ronde hollis jefferson but that's an interesting archetype of the player that's you believe so much in the defense like the the defensive framework is there they can contribute defensively like ronde hollis jefferson was a good defensive player like he played to miss i'm like this guy this guy should be a contributor but when you can't put together those other skills it kind of falls flat. And another player that's the same way, really out of the league by 29, Andre Roberson, right? Andre Roberson, another guy that contributed, that played for an OKC team that was very successful. And ideally, he was in a role that should have worked. He was next to Westbrook and Durant. He doesn't need to score, doesn't need to create one of the better wing defenders in the league. And, you know, he hasn't played more than 30 games since 2018. He's just out of the league before he's 30. 
I, I think he's like the big guys, though, that we could we could say have just sort of been passed by the the, the Roy Hibbert corollary. You know, another Milwaukee Buck, Greg Monroe, is a is a good example of this. I think what happened with Roberson is if he comes along earlier, he stays in the league because of how great his defense is, and he can slash and get offensive rebounds and finish cuts and transition, and so. What you would do is, if it were 1987, you would look at Andre Roberson at the end of the year, and you'd be like, "Wow, he's one of you know, Cody. He's one of my favorite players. Averages 12 points, seven rebounds, two assists, two steals, three blocks, all defensive, ten times all defense. What a player that Andre Roberson!" But this is happening in the middle of the 2000s when the shooting and and the pace and space boom is happening, and so you get Roberson who can't shoot played off the court basically because of his offense. Very different than what we were talking about. Greg Monroe is another guy like that, as I just mentioned. I think there are other bigs that kind of kind of fall into that category. He heard his ACL, but Jabari Parker, another really high draft pick, right? Uh, I think he tore his ACL twice, which is, you know, part of another another buck. Another Milwaukee buck, Ben. Number two pick. Number, number two pick. Um, but those guys feel like, it feels like a different archetype to me, right? Versus like, Someone who I I think is out of the league now. He's a free agent, and and I think he's had some training camps and hasn't been able to stick. But like um, Emmanuel Moutier, mm. you know, fifteen points per game in two thousand nineteen for the Knicks. What's the rub when I say that sentence? The Knicks won seventeen games in two thousand nineteen. So he goes to Utah in two thousand twenty. Utah is a higher level playoff team, and he plays a total of ten percent of Utah's available. Play. I don't remember what it comes out to, like you know, thirty minutes or something like that in a in a handful of games. But it it's just a massive difference between a score on a bad team and kind of an on ball score on a good team. You know, I don't really want to just turn this into we go back and forth and list people, but there's there's a player that I actually think it's is really relevant to bring up because I think when people remember him, and you know, he's, he was in the league pretty recently, people remember him much higher, and that's Dion Waiters in this conversation because I think Dion Waiters is like the captain of the archetype of, uh, Oh, what's the term we were talking about before? Irrational confidence guys. Like you just need this guy. That's like when the chips are down, you just need to give it to him and he's be able to create something out of this. But here's the thing about Dion. This actually kind of blew my mind when I went through this and was looking for it. He's only played in the playoffs twice, Ben. He's only played in the playoffs twice. Okay. One of them, he averages 27 minutes a game. He averages eight points per game in that playoff run. Eight points per game. He plays 18 games, 27 minutes a game, averages eight points per game as an irrational confidence scoring guy. The only other playoffs he played in was with the championship Lakers in 2020. He plays five games. He averages seven minutes a game in those five games, right? So this is a guy that I think people remember more fondly. And I think, you know, it's the siren song of these kinds of scorers, right? Like the song is so beautiful. You can't help but steer your ship into the rocks. And, you know, you can try and jam the wax in your ears as much as possible to defend it. But it's so tough. You know, you just strap ourselves to our masts and we're watching it. And we're like, this is so beautiful. But you got to hold yourself back. You got to look at the, the bigger picture and be like, is this actually is this actually a player that can contribute on a high level team? Let me let me uh, rip off a bunch of names just so people understand how prevalent this is, and you can go in and look at these players if you're interested in greater detail. They they fall in you know somewhat different categories um, depending on how good they were as scorers based on what we're talking about today. But just from the last 15 years, again, that's all we looked at: Al Thornton, Clippers scorer; Ryan Gomes, Celtics scorer. 
Um, interesting guy that I was looking at was Chris Humphreys, right? Because he's a big, but also kind of seems to very much fall in that, like, I'm, I'm going to score and get a bunch of rebounds and have these raw stats, but where else am I contributing to stay on the floor? Marshawn Brooks, um, it, we'll see what happens with Trey Burke, a guy like Nick Young, on a higher level, but but the same concept we talked about with like Monte Ellis, Brandon Jennings, the Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell pairing of like guys that can just fill it up in the regular season and seem to do really well in the regular season. And then maybe Harrell more so than, than Williams. I'm grouping them together because of their time with the Clippers. But if you look at Harrell, he went down to 19 minutes per game in the bubble with the Clippers the same year that he averaged, like I believe his highest scoring average and maybe highest, highest minutes per game. So it's like, Oh, we're having a career year, but when you get in the playoffs, you're playing 19 minutes a game on a championship contender. And you're supposed to be a big time part of that rotation. And then he went to another championship level team the next year across the locker room with the Lakers. And he played 10 minutes a game. And this is all happening in his mid-20s, right? Like he's, I know it feels to me like Montrezl Harrell has been in the league for 30 years, but he's still relatively young. So uh, all, all names like that, but a few more guys that I just wanted to stop on and, and maybe have interesting discussions about. Um, one of them is Marcus Thornton. Do you remember Marcus Thornton? Marcus Thornton was the top of my... I'm playing 2K14... And I'm doing a fantasy draft, and it's the ninth round, and I just need to get some shooters around LeBron. Marcus Thornton had, like, such a perfect 2K release that, like, I had to have him because his jump shot was so pure. So that's what I remember of Marcus Thornton. Yeah, and he's interesting because he's on the edge. You know, he's a pretty good shooter, 36% career three-point shooter, uh, 83% career free-throw shooter. I, he was one of the, these guys on this list that I was actually a little excited about. I was a little excited about him. I, I can, I can, it wasn't too far ago that I can remember, like I can't remember my, my impressions because he was there in Sacramento. 19 to 21 points per game on these 20-something win teams with the Kings, okay? And this is in his second or third year. Um, then he, he averages 15 points per game. He, sorry, he averaged 15 points per game as a rookie with the Hornets and they were a 36 win team. So there's some optimism between the shooting and, you know, he he could get a little bit off ball and catch and shoot quickly. As you said, 2k style, Cody, his only postseason action is when he's traded to the Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce nets, the Brooklyn nets in 2014, not exactly a world beating team average 12, 12 minutes per game in the playoffs goes to the Celtics in 2015, another playoff team. 16 minutes a game in the regular season in the rotation, basically does not play in the playoffs, out of the rotation, out of the league a couple years later. So yet another one of these like small, spunky guards that the slope was very, very slippery. It was very, very slippery. And I don't know how I'd feel now, but I think if you went back and asked me in 2014... I'd be like, yes, Marcus Thornton is going to be a nice critical contributor off the bench. Get him there. He can he he can close games. He'll be a, he'll be a big shooter. And it's like, just can't even can't even crack the rotation. You bring up man. You brought up Eddie House at the beginning. And when I think about Marcus uh, Marcus Thornton, I want like why couldn't he be Eddie House? And I think that's the really right. the tricky part is when you have these guys because Eddie House wasn't an excellent defensive player. He was a great shooter. 
he really didn't have like on ball skills. So I think like why, like why, why couldn't you do it? And I think that is the the thought process on here that's just so so confounding. Like why weren't some of these guys able to do it more? Because that this one makes less sense than say I'm not going to say another name, but somebody who's a little bit more <laughs> on ball and maybe played for the Bucks. You you had there's only one more name that I think. Let me just double check my list here because we got a lot. I'm leaving out some names. We have a lot of names. I just want people to understand how common it is. And there's a number of candidates in the league today that, um, again, I don't really want to call out. But you could just look around your your local team and do you have someone that fits this bill? He's a really young player, needs the ball, scores, but the impact of scoring isn't elite. And then the passing and playmaking and all the little things aren't there. So there's candidates always in the league amongst these young players. But the one guy that you you brought up, Cody, in your research, and maybe the last guy to talk out that's re- really interesting to me is Michael Beasley. Because he was just an incredible scoring prospect in college. And to some degree, I think that scoring game was good enough to keep him around the league. But... I mean, you, you pulled some numbers on him. It's, it's again, this illusion, the siren song of like, oh, we can get Michael Beasley. And by the nature of him being able to pour in 18 or 20 points a game, he must cross some certain value threshold that makes him better, certainly than role players. I mean, come on, guys that score five points per game or something. But, you know, I think his career is is an interesting example of like, it's not actually that valuable when it's not that good. What's really interesting about him is when you when you look at his regular season, you know, there were four separate times, Ben, four regular seasons where he scored 20 points per 75 possessions, at least 20 points per 75 possessions. And he played over 1,500 minutes on all of them, right? He broke 2,000 minutes on three of those. So this isn't like a, a bit player, right? This is a guy that's actually getting minutes and scoring. And, you know, he hovered around relative true shooting percentage of negative four and zero. So it's it's not the worst ever. He's not an efficient score, but he's at least dropping 20. But in the playoffs, this is where it gets interesting with Beasley because he played in the postseason five separate times, right? Only starts in one of them. Plays over 25 minutes per game in two of them. <laughs> Here's how he scored in those two uh, postseasons, right? Here's how he scored in the two postseasons where he averaged over 25 minutes per game. In one of them, he scores 21.2 points per 75 possessions on negative nine efficiency. And the other one scores 16 points per 75 on negative four efficiency. That's not all, Ben. In 2010, his box creation, we talked about Iverson was right around 11. That means Iverson's creating 11 shots for his teammates per 100 possessions. Michael Beasley, 0.6. He is producing point, he's creating 0.6 shots for his teammates every 100 possessions. What were those his first two years in Miami? The stats you're you're pulling from because he he didn't play much in the playoffs after those first two years. He played like uh somewhere between 6 and 16 minutes per game in spot duty uh in 2014 in Miami in 2016 in Houston in 2017 back in Milwaukee Cody what what's going on is there, we need an investigation into maybe this is why did you do the putty pillow sheets and somehow get me to do this entire podcast <laughs> this is like a brief oral history of the Milwaukee Bucks franchise i believe everything you just read to me about Michael Beasley and maybe this is a perfect place to end came from his rookie and sophomore years yeah, they were in Miami, right? They were, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the Bucks, um, though, that let's, between between the 2001 Eastern Conference Finals, which we chronicled, and like Giannis, there was some dark. I remember. I remember clearly, clearly drafting Jimmer for debt was like the most exciting moment of my life until he was instantly traded for Steven Jackson, and even like that clearly ended up being a good trade for the Bucks. But that was that was the highlight of a year as a Bucks fan at that point. So it's it, dark. You were listening to the siren song of Jimmer for Dead. Mm-hmm. You were you were tuning in to BYU games after hours and getting excited about 40-point binges in the Mountain West. Is that conference the Mountain West? I don't watch college sports anymore, so I don't know what a conference. Do they have conferences? Do you know? Is there is there a Pac-12? Does it still exist? Listen, listen. This is the Big Ten. There's the Big Ten. We're talking basketball, right? Big is Ten. Is the Big Ten still ten people? Is the still ten teams? Is the Big East? Is it called the Big East? The Twelve East? What's the other one? That's the one with. It Syracuse used to be the Big, East. the Big East. That's when I when when there was no more Big East. That's when I got out. I said that's it. What I grew up on the Big East. What are your West Coast teams called? What's that little conference? <laughs> it used to be the Pac Eight. Okay. And then it and then it was the Pac Ten, and now it's the Pac Twelve. And only people over fifty are enjoying this segment of the <laughs> of the show right now. <laughs> Wait, is UCLA part of the Big Ten now? Is that a thing well, that happened? UCLA is in the Pac Twelve. I I went to that university. Yeah, but you're saying they changed? they changed? I thought they're part of the Big Ten. I thought there was a California team that's randomly in the Big Ten. Did I say Marshawn Brooks's name? <laughs> uh, if you if you want to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have our uh, daily, our, our new website with our daily in-season stats for players and teams that we check all the time. We use them to research this show. I, Cody, I don't know about you, but I wake up every day and pull up some player's card. Um, when I'm when I'm looking into him and scouting a game and things like that. And of course, we have our historical database where you can look up all of the playoff scoring stats and box plus minus model performances and, and any other advanced stat that we have on uh, on all the players that we discussed on today's show. Hopefully we weren't hopefully we weren't too negative. A lot of these guys were able to make NBA careers and, and make a lot of money precisely because they're better at scoring a basketball than like Literally 99.9999% of Earth. But that's how steep, that's how steep the scoring slope is, Cody, is that if you just move down a little bit, all of a sudden, you know, you can barely do the same thing in the NBA. Yeah, I think, I would like to think we were more instructive than mean tonight. You know, everyone that gets to trash on Kwame Brown, like that's the easy one that people go to. But I think what we did actually like, I would like to think that there's something you can take away from it instead of just dunking on these people. Ironically, Kwame stayed in the league because of his size, yeah. his a little bit of paint presence, defense, shot blocking, and even though he had those hands like feet, you know, he could catch it and throw it down uh, as a finisher occasionally. So, uh, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Hope you enjoyed this one all the way through. Uh, Cody, hope you have a, a great birthday and do something fun and safe. And wherever you're listening to this one, I, of course, hope you are having a great day. <laughs>